Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, uh, I know there's been a lot going on this year. Uh, You know, we obviously have a new U.S. president. We had the GameStop saga in markets. But I I think we can all agree that the big news of 2021 has been that China's new live hog futures started trading. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously what I was going to say as well. (laughs) I mean, that's how, you know, that is sort of the big thing that everyone is talking about so far this year. Yeah. Okay. So clearly we are joking. uh, But I will say these new futures (laughs) contracts were something like 20 years in the making. Um, So they took a really long time to get here. Uh, One of the reasons that China is so interested in starting futures contracts for pork is because they've basically had their pig supply absolutely decimated in recent years by African swine fever. So the whole idea is that the futures contract will come in, it'll allow some standardization of pigs, and it will allow farmers to hedge and things like that, and they'll be able to rebuild their pork supply. Mmm, standardization of pigs. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very intrigued by this. Yes, okay, welcome to Agricultural Odd Lots. Um, So we're going to be talking about the pig futures contract, but we're going to be talking about food price inflation more generally, because, of course, we've seen pork prices in China absolutely uh, surge recently. It's starting to come down now. But but globally, as you know, Joe, there's been a massive rise in, in food prices. Yeah. And I would say if I were to actually from an eco standpoint, if I were to say what is the biggest story in 2021 or in the economy right Mm. now, it would be all of the different bottlenecks, price increases we're seeing at the producer side. We've talked about it with shipping and we've talked about it with semiconductors. We've talked about it with uh, Jeff Curry with industrial commodities. And of course, we're also seeing it in agriculture commodities. You know, if you look at the last year in the U.S., soy futures up from 900, I, I guess it's for futures contract per bushel, 900 to 1400. Corn is up by a lot. Hogs are up by a lot. Cattle is up by a lot. So there is almost, you know, all these different categories. We're seeing this upward price pressure issues relating to, of course, uh, supply chain disruption, still dealing with COVID, massive uh, recovery in demand around the world, particularly uh, in China, but elsewhere. Where And now as of the time that we're recording this, and I think we're going to talk about it too, uh, the extraordinary scenes that we're seeing out of Texas and the freeze, which is really disrupting the ent- the economy of the entire central part of the United States. Yeah, a perfect storm of factors coming together yeah. to uh, increase food prices. Storm might not be the right phrase there, but it is. I mean, you are starting to see actual impacts of this. So here in Hong Kong, uh, McDonald's isn't um, offering hash browns in its breakfast anymore. Whoa. So, you know. Things are very serious. More seriously, we've seen some countries starting to talk about putting uh, price caps on food prices. I think Russia is already doing it. The UAE was talking about doing it as well. So it is beginning to affect people's lives and it is causing problems for some governments. So we're going to dive into the whole issue of food price inflation, as well as the new Dalian hog futures contract by popular request. We're going to be speaking to Scott Irwin. He's an agricultural economist at the University of Illinois. Scott, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So, Scott, in addition to being an agricultural economist, you're also uh, an an actual farmer from Iowa. Is that correct? 
Well, I, that's probably technically speaking. Um, I don't actually get much tractor driving and physical participation, but I, it's an interesting situation. Um, I, from the landlord side of my family's farm out in Iowa, my 85-year-old mother and I provide the management and do all the marketing of the crops. So I live through the ups and downs of the grain markets like everybody else. Plus, I, uh, I get to try to uh, work the markets with my card-playing 85-year-old mother. That sounds, that sounds extremely satisfying and fun. You know, right now, you know, I sort of mentioned this rally that we're seeing. It's pretty intense across various soft commodities, agriculture commodities. Why don't you give us the sort of basic big picture of what's going on, what's driving uh, this bid? China. Perfect. Is that as uh, succinct as you? Yeah. Uh, it's not the only factor, of course, but in the uh, ag markets, that's the number one driving force. We've seen a uh, just a s explosion in grain exports to China, basically started about last July and has shown little signs of cooling off. Some of that related to their phase one trade agreement that was negotiated uh, in the previous Trump administration. Uh, some of it also related to rebuilding of their hog herd because of the African swine fever. And then some of it is also uh, related to just their desire to rebuild some of their reserve stocks as well. But that's the number one fact. So one thing I always wondered about, you see these headlines that China is building up it, its grain reserves. And I, I don't know, I can, I can kind of see why countries would do that. But I, I always wonder how useful those reserves are over the long term and how they actually use them. Can you give us a sort of like potted summary of what building up reserves actually means? Well, it's classic example of something that sounds good in theory and rarely works well in practice. Hmm. We have many decades of experience with different kinds of reserve schemes here in the U.S. Uh, they've tried it in metals, grains, and all sorts of commodities, soft commodities over the years. Uh, so they're called buffer stock schemes. And the problem is, you know, the idea is, is you build it at you know, it's kind of the seven fat years and the seven lean years, uh, biblical example, put in practice. And so that all sounds good in theory, but it all becomes very political. And uh, governments have a tendency to not want to release the buffer stocks when they really ought to, to, uh, you know, maybe calm markets down because then farmers are mad because you're driving the price down. Uh, and so it's just it's a deeply political and it rarely works as uh, well as it sounds in theory. So why do they do it and when do they do it? So if these if this is a scheme or if this idea of building up huge reserves is not even really particularly sound and doesn't work well in practice, as maybe they think, what why do they occasionally do this? Because I think. I was just looking at a chart. I think like in 2011, didn't they like buy a crazy amount of cotton, sending the cotton prices right. uh, soaring? What catalyzes them at one moment or another to say, OK, we're really just going to go out in the market and buy? Fear. It's just driven. You'll see that those kinds of uh, big buildups and reserves typically follow price spikes. Hmm. 
Think of the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. When is there intense pressure to build that up? Yeah, it started in 06, 07, 08 when crude oil prices were spiking. And that's the typical pattern. And, you know, the other thing is, is with China, they have huge stocks, which I'm not even sure that the uh, Chinese government really knows the size of their stocks of basic commodities. We know that their statistics are way off. I mean, the USDA and other international organizations try to track these in grains will occasionally just go through these massive revisions. You wake up and China has, you know, uh, 100 million less tons of feed grains on hand than you thought they did yesterday based on the official statistics. So on top of, I think, the difficulty of making those work really well in practice, in China, you have the extra problem of uh, trying to figure out what the real number is. So one thing I've always wondered, you know, when we talk about food prices being at a six-year high, do farmers actually benefit from that? Well, I think when you uh, see something like that headline of food prices at a six-year high, we have to be really careful because that's reflecting various indices of the cost of what I call uh, farm-level prices. So it's like the price of corn and soybeans in central Illinois that farmers here can sell their corn and soybeans for, or hogs, or, or anything at the farm level. There's a vast difference between that price and the price you pay in your local grocery store. And a rough rule of thumb is that about only 20% of what you come home with uh, from the grocery store that's food is represented by the farm level share of the cost. So you can have a six year high in the raw price of most foods, and it doesn't budge the grocery or retail level price all that much. Now, that's not strictly true for all uh, commodities. Things like milk, meat, and eggs are most directly uh, related to the price at the farm level because they're obviously very perishable and consumed close to the raw form. The more processing you have, the, the more that that distance from retail price or grocery store price to the farm price gets. All right, I'm going to ask another very remedial question about commodity economics, and it's this, which is that when people talk about the existence of the futures market, and I quoted some soy futures and corn future prices uh, in the intro, it's like they're like, well, the farmer has to hedge their production because they don't know what the weather's going to be like, and the buyer wants to hedge, et cetera, because they don't know this. And that's why the futures market exists and so on. Does the futures market actually work as such in practice, such that farmers who are out there on the land in some level or another use it to actually um, manage risk? Great question. That's the classic textbook example that everyone uh, from the exchanges on uh, used to um, motivate futures markets and why people hedge. And it actually isn't a very good picture of how those markets actually work. Most producers here in the U.S., even the most sophisticated ones, don't use the futures markets directly themselves very much. Uh, they do it indirectly through something called forward contracting with, mm. local, say, their local grain elevator. Uh, 
But even then, they might maybe at most uh, sell forward 15, 20, 25 percent of their production. So the vast majority of the trading volume on what we would call the commercial or hedging side is actually done by what I like to call grain merchants. These are the big and the small companies that are involved in the basic transformation of a commodity in time, form, and space. Those are the people that really use the futures markets. That's, that's the core community. So this is something that I actually wanted to ask you about, which is we have all these different futures contracts out there. So, you know, the CME famously had its physically delivered contract for live hogs, and then that got converted into cash settlement. What actually makes a successful futures contract and and how do you judge success? Well, you can look at it the way an economist looks at it, but the simplest way to look at it from uh, exchange and traders at a futures exchange is simple, volume. That's their measure of success. It's easy. Uh, do people want to trade it? And are there you know, rising and large volumes of contracts exchanged? Very simple objective function from their perspective. An economist looks at it a little bit more broadly and asks, does the contract fulfill an important role in helping to discover prices for that commodity? Uh, and is it a good vehicle that a broad swath of people in that commodity sector can use to manage their risks? So those are the two economic functions that we look at as an economist, but an exchange looks at it very simply. Volume. You know what I really like about this podcast is like ostensibly we're like, oh, what's going on in grains and food and everything? But I love that we just get to use this as a time to ask really basic questions that like we would probably never ask in any other form. like. How does the futures market work and who actually trades it? Because I can't think of any other opportunity where I would like get to ask that question except this podcast. So I just want to say is one reason I really enjoy doing it. So, Tracy, uh, (laughs) I know it's really great. I just like when else would I get to do this? Like if I said this on air on TV, I would be laughed at and I wouldn't have the time. (laughs) Okay, so let's get to the big question, which is why should we care? about, say, the introduction of China's new live hog futures, which have uh, been trading for just over a month, it looks like? Well, there you get to the real basic question of, you know, what's the purpose in the largest sense? What's the value of commodity futures markets to an economy and to a society? And if it's doing its job right, it basically makes the marketing system more efficient. In other words, producers will get higher prices and consumers will pay lower prices. That margin between the farm price and the ultimate consumer price gets a little bit more efficient, a little more competitive and cost efficient. That's the core value of a futures market that's working well. So one thing I wanted to ask you about 
is how the Dalian contract actually works. So I, I think the size is for 16 tons of pork, which is about, or 16 tons of pigs, I should say, which apparently is equal to one truck full of hogs. Um, so again, like this kind of gets to the standardization element, but how are they actually taking delivery of actual hogs? And do you think it will help standardize um, China's pork market? Again, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on that particular futures sure. contract, but what I've read is uh, it seems like the size is comparable to what the CME lean hog contract is in terms of the number of hogs it represents. Uh, roughly a truckload is kind of a common uh, size, so that makes sense. I think China's challenge will be is that their pork sector is far less industrialized than, say, here in the U.S., mm. uh, in the, that they have millions upon millions of very, very small pork producers, and they're not going to use a futures market. A futures market will be used by the very large industrialized pork operations in China, which are growing rapidly, but there's still a relatively small share of the, that country's total pork production. And you'll see slaughtering plants and, you know, what I'd like to call that, those middle operators, or what I call merchants, those will, in almost every futures market, tend to be the biggest users. And so that's the community I would look to to see if it's going to be successful. So I'm really fascinated by this point about the sort of uh, the inconsistency of or the, the, I guess, diversity, the inconsistency of uh, the domestic pork operations and how that fits into, I guess, you know, a standardized futures contract. You buy a, uh, you know, however many tons of hogs and you expect a certain like quality and consistency. But I guess that's that must be an issue across all futures always, whether it's corn or soy, you buy a certain amount, you expect a certain grade, a certain quality, and every ear of corn, I guess, could theoretically be slightly different. How do commod future uh, or commodity traders across the futures markets and sort of commercial buyers of them, how does that get worked out over time such that the deliveries of the actual goods become predictable and standard? And how does the futures contract itself as Tracy alluded to in the intro, sort of accelerate that um, predictableness. Right. Well, the first thing to remember is that the vast majority of futures contracts are never uh, fulfilled by physical delivery. Like in the grains, maybe one or two percent of all the contracts that are traded actually end up uh, resulting in physical delivery. And that's by design. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the contract because the futures market is, in simplest terms, designed to be a parallel market organization or vehicle where you can place side bets if you're a producer or a middle operator. And those side bets uh, allow you to, in essence, manage your price risk. So you're over here in the futures markets taking long and short positions to manage the price risk of whatever is your underlying cash position. 
And what you really are interested in then is, do my cash prices and my futures prices go roughly in parallel so that if I'm long in the cash and I go short in the futures, then the price movements roughly offset one another. That's all you care about. You're not using it as a merchandising Uh, vehicle to actually get the physical commodity. But at the same time, why the terms of the contracts, the things you were talking about, are critical. Because if you're going to manage your risk over here in the cash market side with a futures contract, you need a futures contract that has terms and reflects the prices as closely as you can get to what you're doing over here in the cash market. Got it. I wanted to uh, widen out the conversation once again and, and talk more about agricultural prices generally. So we are seeing lots of talk about agflation. I guess my question is, what could be done at this moment in time, in your opinion, to bring food prices down? Well, I don't think that there's probably a lot that governments can do around the world because there aren't large excess stocks laying around, you know, in these kind of buffer stock schemes, except maybe inside China. Uh, I'm not myself uh, very concerned at this point about, I love the term you had, inflation. We have seen large increases in prices, but let's just kind of wait and, you know, Uh, Coming on the other side of this is going to be a monstrous supply response around the world and things like Mm. corn and soybeans and and on the livestock. And you just kind of got to give the system a little time. I mean, it's very important to remember, like standing around mid-August, we thought here in Illinois, we were going to have in 2021, one of the worst years we've had for a long, long time on income. And it wasn't very long ago. And then corn and soybean prices started shooting up and we're going to see a big increase in acreage. Farmers are going to pour the inputs in. And if we get any kind of decent weather here in the U.S., we're going to have a big crop. And it looks like, for you know, the first cut at the big price, high prices was in South America. And other than maybe some problems in Argentina, they look like they're going to have pretty good crops. So I don't see anything in this yet. That, that really deeply concerns me about long-term agflation. So is there a way to sort of anticipate the uh, how long the stocking cycle goes? So obviously you will get this and hopefully we get a robust supply response to the demand. What about the demand side itself? Can economists, can you anticipate how much more China has left to buy before it will be satisfied with its attempt to sort of build up a buffer? Or is that inherently unpredictable due to how political it is? Uh, With China in particular, that is uh, wildly hard to predict because you're purely predicting, you know, uh, inside the Chinese Communist Party, what are going to be their political decisions on these key kinds of variables. And the data is just so poor, uh, at least in the public domain. Give you an idea of how hard this thing is to assess in China. I, I have some uh, colleagues that work in uh, hedge funds, and when the African swine fever started taking off, you know, there's a huge hedge fund. They had no idea. So they started 
having regular calls with veterinarians they could get a hold of inside China directly. And they just tried to build up a network and start talking to people. So it's very hard. You know, it's very volatile and uncertain situation when the world's largest consumer is this kind of opaque. Hmm. There's one other uh, big thing going on at the moment or that has the potential to actually happen um, and impact food prices and uh, the farming community. And that's the new U.S. president, Biden, coming in, presumably with some sort of new agricultural policy. Uh, He definitely seems to have a focus on climate change, um, which would impact things like soybeans. How do you see that playing out? Well, I think that's going to be very interesting. Um, and it's going to be layered on top of an, uh, our ongoing, what I call RFS wars here in the U.S. politically over the renewable fuels mandates that we already have uh, uh, here in the U.S. by law. So we have that that's ongoing. And then you have layered on top of that things like the California low carbon fuel standard, some talk of that being expanded going forward. Uh, You have something called renewable diesel plants being built uh, at a wild pace uh, uh, right now in responding to these policy incentives. So this is definitely an area that I'm paying really close attention to and I think has the potential to be probably the biggest demand game changer, both negatively and positively for ag in the next few years. Can you can you actually explain that a little bit further? What could change policy wise that's on the horizon, making it making either ag demand go sharply higher or lower? Well, probably the first thing I'd come up is, uh, you know, what's the Biden administration going to do with ethanol? Right. You know, um, you know, I hear chatter that uh, there's certainly the ag groups are going to really be pushing moving from a de facto 10% standard on gasoline to 15%. Would a Biden administration for climate change uh, reasons and domestic political reasons go along with that? That could be huge. Secondly, what is the new Biden administration's position going to be in terms of how we implement our renewable fuel mandates? Under the Trump administration, uh, who was very closely allied with the crude oil refiners, Basically, their entire strategy was to give it as big a haircut as possible, you know, reduce it. We're still kind of trying to find out where the Biden administration is going to fall on all of these. Plus, we have a big case in front of the Supreme Court on the renewable fuel standards. So there's a lot of moving pieces on that right now. So one of the few things I know about the farming community is that um, they seem to be, uh, how do I, how do I put this? Like for the past few years, they seem to be, um, they seem to feel bad. What will it, would it take to get, um, I, I guess, the sort of like happy days uh, sentiment back into the farming community in the U.S.? Oh, you know, there's always a lot of things that contribute to uh, farmer's grumpiness, <laughs> having grown up and being kind of technically one myself. So that that's a complicated question on a personal level. But more seriously, high prices. 
That always takes care of it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, high prices. So, you know, I can give you some round numbers that uh, would help here in Illinois. If you could assure Illinois farmers of uh, $4 corn and 11 or $12 soybeans, there'd be a lot of smiles. And what are we at right now? Uh, we're actually above those levels right now. Okay. Uh, in terms of the cash prices, um, they're look, you know, uh, quite a bit higher than that. Uh, we're looking at over $5 corn and uh, what I just checked, I think right around $13 for beans. So farmers are very happy with those prices right now. So the other thing that's going on, obviously, this sort of horrific Arctic blast that's really affecting the entire central part of the United States, actually a huge swath of the country, particularly brutal in Texas, all kinds of spillovers. We're recording this February 17th, just an hour or two ago. I saw the Texas governor declaring no natural gas exports would be allowed from the state. So it's going to spill over into other states. I saw there were issues with getting um, the feedstock to the ethanol ethanol plants uh, due to the freeze. What are some of the implications that you're already seeing as a result of this? And how long could we be uh, sort of dealing with the aftermath, even if it you know warms up in the next couple of days? I don't think that the natural gas-related disruptions that we've seen will last very long, simply because it's going to warm up so much in a week. It's just that's not going to last too long. Probably in an ag side, the I would say there would be two main impacts that will have to be assessed to see how long-lasting. First off, uh, I mean, this was a absolutely brutally cold event that went right straight down the middle of the Great Plains. So what kind of uh, losses are we looking at in uh, cattle feed yards and uh, literally death and freezing or cow-calf operations and slowdown in rates of gain, things like that. Those those are going to play out for a while. Hogs are almost entirely in confinement buildings, so there's not going to be chickens the same way, not, not much. One that's really only now, I think, you know, the, the futures market's been thinking about it, but one of the ones that might have a longer, the longest lasting impacts is what did this do to the winter wheat production here in the U.S.? You know, normally it's extremely hardy uh, crop. It's like a friend of mine says, you know, you can kill the wheat crop seven times uh, a, a year with bad weather. But this was a length of low temperatures that was extraordinarily long, even by Great Plains standards. And, you know, a dormant wheat is supposed to be very hardy. You know, it's literally dormant, but it can still be killed uh, if the temperatures are low enough, long enough. And so there's a lot of debate about that. That's, that's the one I would really be looking for long run is to see, you know, how much what they call winter kill did we really get with the U.S. winter wheat crop. I think that was fantastic. I learned a lot from that. Well, hopefully not too wordy. Professors tend to do that, I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's perfect. (laughs) Thanks so much, Scott. All right. Take care, Scott. I love talking about commodities. I think I think I secretly always wanted to be a commodities reporter and I never really got the chance. 
Do you know, oh, Tracy, I meant to tell you, speaking of being a reporter, remember a while back on one of our episodes, you said if you were starting um, as a journalist, now you'd be a semiconductor reporter? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone DM'd me the other day and said they heard that and they were inspired and they wanted to get into, um, they heard you say that and they were going to like uh, start writing about semiconductors. So you you may have launched someone's Aww. career. Yeah. Thought, thought I've spawned you know a whole generation of semiconductor reporters. <laughs> that's, that's great. Let's chill out. At least one. Maybe one. <laughs> All right. Um, but commodities. So th- here, the thing the thing I like about commodities, I think, is it brings a lot of these sort of market ideas and market structure theories to life. Right. Because you're talking about an actual product. And you can think about holding, uh, well, maybe yeah. not a live pig in your hand, but you could think about holding corn or soybeans in your hand. And you can actually connect that to the way the futures market works and to the way uh, markets generally function. Tracy, you're going to take delivery of a live pig, aren't you? <laughs> I can see that. Like that. Um, yeah, I know you would. Uh, no, I, I'm not. But I, I totally would, actually, if I had a place to uh, to put it. But. You see what I mean, right? Like there's yeah, this yeah, physical totally. aspect of the commodities no, market. Okay, totally. And I actually thought that was a really interesting point he said about the goal of a commodities market is not about taking delivery of mm. the physical commodity itself via the end commercial buyer of the future, but about having a contract running parallel to the cash market such that the fluctuations should be in the same direction. So you could get a delivery of pigs and maybe they're a little bit inconsistent. But as long as sort of directionally the cost of the actual cash pigs, I guess, and the pig futures are moving in the same way, then the futures market serves its purpose for the participants, which I thought was interesting. But then, of course, you know, you could see how over time the desire to, I guess, I guess you would arb the cash what is it, what is it, ARB the cash futures spread would encourage participants to start delivering pigs or any other commodity that are, you know, in line with the uh, the specs, the specifications. So you could see how it serves that purpose. I was just thinking it'd be funny if you saw live hog prices or lean hog prices go negative and suddenly everyone had to take delivery of a bunch of pigs. That'd be hilarious. That would be amusing. Like with oil. The other thing I liked is I finally got to ask the question about whether the hedging farmer is a myth. Because I've always sort of suspected Mm. that farmers don't really hedge like they do in the textbooks. And I'm I'm glad he confirmed that. But that was a great that was great. I I could I actually could have listened to him for a a lot longer. Well, we'll have him back on for sure. The next time we have a big agricultural development, we'll start our uh, all thoughts farming spinoff. I like I like when you ask him what would make farmers happy and he's just like higher prices. <laughs> that was good. Well, it's a look, I feel entitled to ask that question because actually my granddad in Texas was a cattle farmer. Um, and they tend to be I mean, Scott's use of the word grumpy was correct. As far as I could tell, they they tend to be a pretty pessimistic bunch. Um, and of course, we've seen them complain a lot over the years so i'm genuinely curious like what what do they want to see there's always a drought right there's always a drought right there's always consolidation and probably the large industrial ag factory farms are probably always sort of making life miserable in some way or another for the small farmer 
there is probably, and we could have gotten into this, but I have to imagine, um, and maybe we could even do another episode, concentration, particularly when it comes to, and I remember this was an issue this past summer and spring with the coronavirus, but sort of the concentrated buying power of the slaughterhouses as a form of leverage mm -hmm. over oh, yeah. the farmer, essentially. So if you don't have, you know, if you have sort of this monopsony buyer of uh, of your wares, of your, you know, your cows, then that's an issue. So I think in addition to higher low prices, there's all kinds of structural things that probably um, upset the sort of the day-to-day -day farmer. Okay, look, well, episode one of Odd Lots uh, farming series will be why are farmers so grumpy? I'm into it. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Scott Irwin, on Twitter. He's at Scott Irwin UI. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>